Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we're going to be continuing our series on Who Am I? with the second part of our episode focused on bipolar disorder. In part one, we talked mostly about the what of bipolar disorder, what that phrase means. And today in part two, we're going to explore what we can do about it. So to help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing? Good. Very glad we're going to talk about how to help here. Yeah, absolutely. So to ask a kind of obvious framing question that might be occurring to somebody right now, is bipolar disorder considered curable? Hmm. Great question. Technically, no. Hmm. It is considered to be a condition that you have, and the best you can do is manage it. What you can do is prevent episodes. And there's a key point. Both major depression and bipolar disorder are understood in terms of episodes. Good news, all episodes end. Bad news, there might be more of them. So given that they're episodic, the key is to manage things during the episodes and prevent relapse, prevent future episodes. So that's where we're going to focus here. I want to highlight here in our conversation about whether or not bipolar is curable, that it's possible for somebody to go through what might be described as a manic episode or a depressive episode or even a depressive episode and then a manic episode with out meeting the diagnostic criteria for full-on bipolar. As we discussed in part one, there's really a spectrum here. Mm -hmm. And I want to caution people against leaping too quickly from a friend of theirs being down and then being up to saying, oh, that person now has bipolar. So somebody can experience a relatively mild version of these things that might itself be quote-unquote curable simply because the episode ends and you never have another one and there you are. It's all fine. You didn't meet the diagnostic criteria in the first place. So I just kind of want to highlight that, just a a word of caution there. I think very much in the normal range would be those states of being that many people would probably acknowledge in which they would say, you know, I've been kind of depressed lately. Or someone who might say, I've been kind of manic lately. And there's a truth to it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they should be diagnosed with some sort of mental disorder, but there's something kind of apt about it. I can definitely say there have been times in my life where I've been kind of depressed or depressive. And I think it's okay to use that sort of language mm-hmm. softly as long as we know what that's like. I would not say that I've ever been kind of manic. Mm. I've been kind of inflated. I've been kind of big for my britches. I've been kind of annoying, I'm sure. But I would not say I've been kind of manic, let alone fully manic. So disclosure here. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And also, if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking to yourself, I don't have bipolar, I don't know anyone who has bipolar, how is this useful? Well, there are, again, very mild versions of this that you're describing that are maybe more kind of brief episode in nature. I would definitely have described myself as having had certainly medium depressive episodes at previous points in my life, much like you. I'm not sure if I've ever had kind of a true manic episode. But even if you don't meet the kind of diagnostic criteria for what we're talking about here today, there might be tools here that we offer that could be useful for you, even if you're just going through a mild episode. So along these lines, although full-on bipolar isn't considered curable, it is considered highly treatable. Neither of us is a psychiatrist, so we've been kind of careful around offering advice around any sort of medical intervention there. And 
This is absolutely something where you need to talk to a trained professional before going down this path. But for people who have a severe version of bipolar, there are medications that exist that for many people are totally life-changing and extremely useful. I would add there on the medication side that I had a psychiatrist colleague just casually tell me that one of his first lines of treatment really for people with bipolar disorder is essential fatty acids, high quality fish oil in substantial quantities. And I want to be, again, clear that we're not making medication recommendations for or against. And on the other hand, I I want to just relay that information that was really pretty striking to me. Sure, absolutely. And other soft interventions like that, that are in that kind of more chemical framework could be available that don't rise to the level of taking a full-on prescription medication. And more mild forms of bipolar disorder can often be treated with non-chemical intervention. This includes some of the mental strategies and tips and suggestions that we're going to get in here. And a lot of people do find simple interventions uh, really quite game-changing for them. So now I basically want to talk about that. How can somebody start managing their bipolar symptoms? Would you have any kind of initial things that you would first suggest to somebody if they walked into your office and said, you know, doctor, I think I've got a problem here. The absolute first line that I've just seen both informally with people I know and as a professional is education, including the recognition that you've got a genuine psychiatric condition, if that's true. And one of the hardest things for people who are bipolar is for them to recognize that they're bipolar. Mm-hmm. because during the manic phase, they like it. And it just seems so self-evident that, of course, everyone should listen to me. Of course, it's going to be fine to spend all my money on a very bizarre business idea that everyone's yelling at me not to do. Of course, it's going to be okay. So really important step one, recognizing with compassion that you're strapped to a certain kind of a roller coaster and to tell the truth about it. You have it, but you are not it. Really important distinction. And so there's a lot of material and there are a lot of resources people should look into related to what's called psychoeducation. It's not that it's psychoeducation, but psychoeducation about bipolar disorder and other mood disorders. And that's really a good thing to look into. So in addition to that, are there any kind of basic tools or practices that somebody could use to help manage themselves either prior to getting into an episode or while they're in one? When you're in a genuine manic episode, you kind of just need to write it out, Mm. doing as little damage as possible in a way. And that's where psychotropic meds are often really helpful because they flatten the episode or they terminate it and then you kind of come back down again. And also during an episode, it's really important to recognize you're in an episode. And so it can be really helpful to know that in advance of going into an episode, you're still going to listen to your wife (laughs) or your therapist (laughs) or your good buddy who's been there before uh, with you and just do what they say, (laughs) at least for the 10 hours or 10 days that you're strapped to the roller coaster so you don't create any damage. So there's a whole piece of it that's about managing the episode, but a larger focus really is preventing relapse, preventing the episodes in the first place. 
And that's where managing stress really comes in. Stress can kick off the dysregulation of emotion and mood. That is the hallmark of a, of a manic episode. Also, lack of sleep. One of the characteristics of a manic episode is lack of sleep, but lack of sleep can also put you into one. Another finding is that intensely positive emotions that are normal range can, for someone who's vulnerable to manic episodes, trigger a manic episode. Mm. So uh, something I actually put into my books, because as you know, Forrest, including the books we wrote together, I'll talk about the importance of opening to emotionally positive experiences and even kind of cultivating the capacity for strong feelings of joy or gratitude or love. Someone who's genuinely vulnerable to bipolar disorder should be really careful about the upper ranges of that. Of course, just because you should be careful about, let's say, on the zero to 10 scale, anything above a seven doesn't mean that enjoying threes and fours and twos is is wrong in any kind of way. On the kind of more everyday, maybe practical side of the spectrum, one of the things that tends to be very useful to people with bipolar is establishing a regular routine. One of the hallmarks of bipolar, of course, is these fluctuations between the very high and the very low, essentially instability of various kinds. So things that we can do to lower or limit the impact of instability on our lives, having big fluctuations in day-to-day life could potentially have a similar impact on a person because there's less of that steady state of regulation happening around us. So it becomes more challenging to regulate ourselves internally if there's a lot of stuff that's changing around us all the time. And that regular routine can be everything from just kind of making sure that you're going to bed and waking up at a relatively similar time each day to really detailed monitoring. There are people who have bipolar who keep a journal of their mood state day to day. As a brief plug, I actually use an app that helps monitor mood where every day you just kind of click a button and you're allowed to choose from five smiley faces about how you felt that day. And I've actually found it really useful. I think it's called Dailyo. I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast because I think it's a really useful tool. And having little aids like that to just kind of remind yourself of where you're at and really check in with yourself can be a very, very useful tool for that interoception that you're speaking of, which is really that first line does defense being aware of what's going on in your mind and the actual state of your being. Yeah, that's great for us. I wanted to add two maybe small points. One is to repeat, we're not saying that intensity, fieriness, passion, outrage even are bad things. And I think that in this life, we tend to tilt either toward over-pathologizing people or under-pathologizing them. And that's certainly true, I think, for clinicians in general. Honestly, I've tended to underpathologize, And that has exposed me in my personal life to certain situations in which I just didn't see it coming. I really didn't see it coming. On the whole, though, I'm really glad I, I'm kind of like that. I think it's also a fairly conservative strategy if you work in healthcare to not over-pathologize people and to be very attentive, as you've spoken, I think, for us really well about, really attentive to the social construction of quote-unquote mental illness. There's been a lot of stuff about the ways in which society tends to construct who's considered to be sick and who's considered to be normal. So it's important to be really careful about that. 
all that said, if there's a there, there, there really is a there, there. And if there's a genuine vulnerability to getting strapped onto that roller coaster and taken for a ride, then it's important to really recognize that. And also vulnerabilities to what puts you onto the roller coaster. And to that, I want to call out something in particular, which is that it's a known fact that there can be a correlation, say, between hypomania, dialed down versions of manic episodes, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so the presentation can kind of look sort of similar. You know, what's the difference really between someone who is mildly manic and someone who is highly distractible and impulsive, maybe with a certain amount of aggression mixed into the picture? One of the issues with that to be aware of, and again, I speak as a non-psychiatrist, so I'm just speaking of what is available in the general space of education, medication with psychostimulants unfortunately, can foster a movement into bipolar disorder from someone who prior to that was, quote unquote, merely had ADHD to the extent that you have that, as it were. So that's something just to be kind of careful about and thoughtful about, particularly when considering risks and benefits of bringing a psychostimulant medication like Adderall or Ritalin uh, to someone. And that's where as usual. You should really talk with a medical licensed uh, person about that, typically a physician. Here, I would like to make a general point. Most of the psychotropic meds in America are prescribed by general practice physicians, not by psychiatrists. And I'm a little biased toward getting it from a psychiatrist. I mean, it's, it's fine if you go see your internist and let's suppose that person says, you know, why don't you try a little Prozac? And you try it works great for you, you're really fine. But if it's a complex medication situation, maybe a situation also in which a person is not very compliant with medication or doesn't like the side effects or things seem like they're working, but then they stop working, or you just really want to talk with someone who's dealt with that medical technology, medication, uh, with thousands of people rather than merely dozens of people, then I would tend to encourage people to find a good psychiatrist and work with that person. I think that's a great piece of advice. And again, to continue to kind of cover ourselves a little bit here, obviously all of the information that we're offering is intended in the framework of being good and useful tools and as a starting point, not as an ending point. So please don't make any big choices here based on the fact that you heard it on our podcast, right? Use the information that we're giving you as a place to start from. And then please thoroughly do your own research. Talk to licensed medical professionals, clinicians, things like that. And just make sure that you're making a fully informed decision about any choices that you make here. To move back into some kind of non-medical tools, stress management of various kinds is a big part of managing particularly more mild cases of bipolar disorder. I'd offer here some of the basic advice that we've given in previous episodes of this podcast. Things like meditation can be extremely useful for people. Having a regular sleep routine, as I said earlier. Moving your body every day. Finding some kind of an athletic or artistic activity that gets you into movement can be very, very useful as an outlet for emotions of various kinds. Being in connection with people. Finding a social community. Feeling supported particularly when you're not actively in an episode of something, having that social support around, at least in my opinion, and I think that this has been in general quite validated, 
can help people from moving into a future episode. That's great. And I'd like to offer two more things. One is, if you possibly can, if you are someone who gets drawn into hypomania or full manic episodes, try to remember, if you possibly can, that you're high as a kite, Mm. that you're Mm -hmm. not in your right mind. And even though it maybe feels so great, it's actually aggravating and annoying and disruptive to the people around you. Try to remember that if you possibly can. So if you want to call your friend at three in the morning and give them your plan for world peace, don't make the call. (laughs) If you go to a party and you just want to be the person who talks all the time, don't do it. Think to yourself, there's six people sitting around this table. I get to speak for one sixth of the time. Try to control yourself in that way. And also be really careful about risky behavior. Tell yourself, I'm high as a kite. I should not drive a car right now. I should not invest money right now. I should not make any large purchases. I should not make any sweeping life decisions. I should not decide that it's perfectly fine to go rock climbing without a rope. I should not decide that I'm going to be just fine taking the kids in the car on an icy road to visit the relatives uh, at 10 o'clock at night. No, be really, really careful if you possibly can. And one thing you can do is when you're not in the middle of the episode, when you are in your right mind, write notes to yourself of the kind that says, next time you're manic, read this first. Mm -hmm. The second suggestion I want to make is that I've known people who are grappling with uh, bipolar disorder. And when they are in their right mind, often they're ashamed of themselves because during the manic phase in particular, they will often do things that are harmful to other people. And I think it's important to get control of ourselves, but not be ashamed of ourselves. It's the illness. It's the drugs talking. It's not you. And the shame can actually fuel self-harming and it can get in the way of seeking treatment that will actually be helpful to you. So one thing I would just kind of add to the people with bipolar I've known and people in general, you're not a bad person. You're not a bad person. And there are many gifts that you have, which may be intensified actually during a manic episode. So there's a kind of desire to return to those gifts. For example, bipolar disorder is one of the few psychiatric conditions that actually is somewhat lightly correlated with genius and artistic Mm. expression, particularly in the arts of one kind or another. So the important thing to remember is these gifts that you have are in you. They're not just in you when you're manic. And the general qualities in you that are honorable and decent and good are still in you, even if you're depressed. So it's really important to recognize these good things about yourself and not feel ashamed of yourself. For starters, that's a really wonderful reflection. And I think just a really great clarification of a lot of the things that we're talking about here. So much of this, at least in my just personal experience, really comes back to that feeling of shame. Mm. And it's about how do we relate to the elements of who we are. And to echo something that I have said probably, I don't know, four or five times on these podcast episodes so far, really a lot of what we wanted to do here was demystify 
what are for many people very, very scary topics mm. and very intense, emotionally loaded, and as you were saying, particularly socially loaded topics. It's really, really hard to say to somebody, hey, I think I might have a version of this thing that has, man, all of this stigmatization attached to it. But the more that we can move into a way of holding it, that's understanding of the spectrum nature of these things, and also understanding of the fact that it is a part of nature rather than the whole nature itself, and really that so much of it is just nature only. It's just about the chemistry. It's just about the meat. It's just about the flesh. It's not about whatever you are on a, I'm searching for the right word here, on whatever it is that we call our sense of self, that doesn't necessarily have to be you. Mm. You know, you can have yourself, which is independent from whatever is going on in the weird fleshy body of the chemistry of the brain at this given moment. And really holding those two things as both being true, I think is such a big move for many people and can be a really healing step for people as well. Mm, that's great. So to offer one final thought having to do with some of these issues, particularly having to do with extreme manifestations of those feelings of shame that we were talking about before, particularly if you have maybe a more serious version of bipolar disorder, or if you know somebody who does, an important thing to talk about for a moment here is having a safety plan of mm. some kind or another. Uh, self-harm is often a major characteristic of bipolar disorder. This could be self-harm of various kinds, ranging from quote-unquote mild forms of self-harm, like over-consuming substances, up to major forms of self-harm and even suicide. It can be extremely valuable to have a safety plan in place that has things like warning signs and coping strategies and a real discrete plan for what somebody does when they're in a given situation. We're absolutely neither of us specialists in this particular territory by any stretch of the imagination. So if this is something that you think could be a real concern, either in your life or the life of a loved one, really, really recommend that you take the time to go online, to talk to a doctor, to do whatever you kind of have to do here to get the information that you need to make good choices in the event that somebody is truly in a life or death situation. I want to add two practical points to that, to what you said, which was excellent. And uh, the first is, it's helpful to know, like level one, that under certain conditions, you will call a hotline mm. and you will get advice from a trained counselor on the hotline about what you're dealing with and what your options might be. If that's helpful to you, that's level one. Level two, being really real about it, it's useful to know what's the threshold past which you are going to call 911. If you're dealing with, let's say, a family member or a roommate who during a manic episode can get aggressive and threatening, or even self-threatening, like they're standing there in the kitchen and they're really angry and they've got a big butcher knife in their hand, at what point do you pick up the phone and say, I'm going to call 911? Or at what point are you with someone who just feels really, really depressive and you feel like, no, this is kind of scary? If they're not willing to get in the car with you and drive to the ER or the, you know, where they can be evaluated by a psychiatric social worker, say, 
then maybe you do need to call 911. Or if you feel that you or anyone you care about is being threatened in a significant way, what's the threshold? And it's actually weirdly calming to know that past a certain level, it's just out of my hands. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's not me who is calling 911 and having to deal with all the consequences of that. It's just the conditions. Mm -hmm. The objective conditions is not personal, but this person is strapped to a roller coaster that's crashing through the ceiling. And I just have to call 911. And it's helpful to know when will you make that call? What will happen if you do make the call? It depends a little bit on the level, frankly, of the paramedics and the police department in your area, you may not want to make the call, or you might feel like they're really highly trained and you're going to make that call. But that can be something to think about. And it can be very calming to know that (laughs) if it just gets too crazy, I'm going to call 911. I think that so much of this is about the tightrope that we walk between, as you were kind of saying earlier, being overly diagnostic and Mm underdiagnostic, and where do we land on that tightrope? We're not going to act here like these aren't really tough choices. Yeah, These are really hard choices. And in the moment, they're even harder, which is part of why it can be helpful to do some of the thinking on this before the moment of crisis arrives. If, you know, you start to feel like you're in a situation that could arrive at such a moment of crisis to the extent to which it's possible. And often this is not possible, but if it is, even talking this through with the person who's implicated ahead of time, if you feel safe in doing that, if you feel like that's an okay thing, to create, frankly, some agreements, even written Mm -hmm. agreements, around when someone is allowed to intervene in this fashion can be really helpful and really helpful for hopefully a reparative process that happens after that that moment of crisis. Right. How it is manifested for me, Forrest, we could have a whole conversation about this when you call 911. But anyway, if I have a duty to someone, now you can strike that wherever you like. Let's say it's your child or your, or just a roommate. They're not a family member, but you still feel a human commitment to them. And in my considered judgment, they are not in their right mind. And they pose a reasonable, significant risk to themselves and or to others. Then in that moment, my duty trumps everything else. And that's what I'm kind of getting at. The not in their right mind is a short-term episode. They're going to come back to earth eventually. The problem is people do stuff when they're not in their right mind that has permanent consequences. And to the extent that we have a duty in that situation, including a duty to ourselves, to protect ourselves from what this other person might do to us, then when they're not in their right mind and they're acting ways in ways that could be reasonably harmful to themselves and others, then sometimes that ties our hands. And that condition necessitates certain kinds of action, ranging from calling a hotline, to driving a person to the ER, to calling 911 if you have to. And it's kind of helpful in a weird way to realize that it's your duty that's compelling. And it simplifies things enormously. Obviously, you have to make the call correctly, judgments involved, lots of consequences, there are a lot of gray zones and so forth. But there is that moment where your duty compels you to do certain things, no matter how uncomfortable they are for you and others. Yeah, absolutely. And 
as you said, this is a very nuanced topic. We could spend a lot more time discussing it. I think that for purposes of this episode, we've gone about as deep as it makes sense for us to go. So on today's episode, we continued our conversation around bipolar disorder by talking about various ways that we can help treat, manage, or frankly, otherwise be useful to people who might have this condition, including, frankly, some ways in which we might be able to help manage it in our own lives. We began by talking about whether or not bipolar disorder is curable or treatable. The short version of that conversation is that full-on bipolar disorder is not curable, but it's generally considered highly treatable. We then went into a number of ways that somebody can help manage bipolar disorder, either in themselves or in other people. Many of these practices came back to establishing a regular routine, reducing stress, reducing some of the extreme variability of emotion, and then, of course, looking at some of the medical solutions that may or may not be available to you. We then closed the episode with a brief discussion revolving around when it makes sense to intervene if you believe that somebody else is truly in a dangerous place. That's obviously a nuanced and big question with far-reaching implications. So it's best to treat our conversation as an entryway into some of the thoughts that you might be having there rather than as an endpoint. And hopefully some of the suggestions that we gave were useful to you. So that's it for today's episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. 